Hello and welcome to the FSF and Tapestry podcast. I'm Jules and today I'm with Jack and we're joined by Kieran Satie. And Kieran has chatted with us on the podcast before we talked about alternative um, fairy tales then. And this week we're going to be talking about um, reading for pleasure. So Kieran, welcome and thank you for chatting with us again. Lovely to be with you both again. Thank you for having me again. It's good to see you. And to start off with, can you just remind us and tell us a bit about yourself and your journey in education so far? Yes, um, I've been teaching for over 10 years and I'll just say that from now on because I don't want to actually think about it many years. <laughs> um, yes, I've been uh, teaching for over 10 years, um, been leading English for the past five years and I'm now assistant principal, so still with the English hat, um, but just doing a few other bits as well. I'm also the primary trust literacy lead practitioner um, where I'm putting teachers across the five primaries with their predominantly reading but writing as well. Um, yeah, and I've written two chapters that have been in published books this year as well. So one I will be referring to, which is the reading teachers by the Open University. And the other one was the which links back to the alternative files that we were talking about in our previous chat. Amazing. A lot of hats on. I'd get bored otherwise, um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if we get into the kind of bulk of what this podcast is going to be about, what does reading for pleasure pedagogy look like and are there different aspects to it? Um, for me and... I'm sure people will agree and disagree. It's about the child being in the centre when it comes to reading for pleasure. Um, there's two aspects to reading. So there's reading for meaning. And then the other aspect is that reading for pleasure. And I think without reading for pleasure, you're not going to get the reading for meaning. Um, and it comes from the idea of volition, sort of getting that child to choose to read for themselves and understand that they're going to enjoy this process. But it is, it's a fine balance between the two, I think. Um, but in essence, for me, reading for pleasure is it's child-centred. And it's not about forcing that child to read like you have to read to learn. It's about enabling them to find their way into reading. And phonics is great. Um, sight recognition, all of that technical stuff is great. But you need to nurture the love first. Without that, I don't think you're going to get very far with the children. Um yeah, so I can go back to sort of some reading for pleasure pedagogy in the sense that some research was done about a decade ago now. So, yeah, if you go onto the teaching um, website, the Open University website, it's the first thing that you'll see for reading for pleasure. And when we talk about a pedagogy, and it's important that we back up reading for pleasure with pedagogy because it can come across as a fluffy thing when it isn't. Mm -hmm. so there's three aspects that they talk about so independent reading, reading aloud and book talk and encompassing all of that is the social reading environment. So enabling the child to um, choose their text, talk about the books um, and there's four strands to that then. So from the independent reading, reading aloud and the book talk, yeah. learner led, it must be informal because if it's forced, that's where the love is taken out of it. Um, social and supported by text that tempt um, with a reading for pleasure pedagogy, when you have all those aspects, you're then you're driven to sort of looking at texts that your children will hopefully enjoy. But then that comes back to um, a child-centered approach where you're thinking about your relationships with the children in the class or in the school. So it, it, again, it just it comes back to knowing the children, it being child-centered. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about it, but 
the chapter that I'd written about was about um, intrinsic motivation in children. How do you foster that in children? And the case study that I put forward was about a year two child that I taught at my previous school, still within the trust. Um, his name's Declan for the book. But he started year two and he just, he said, I don't, I can't read, miss. And I thought, you said that to the wrong teacher. Um, I said, you will be able to read. And I remember his little face because he was a bit like, because they're quite, I love the children in that area because they just say how it is. And he was a bit like, Miss, think you're having a laugh. And I was like, I'm not. And he's year two, he's seven years old. I was like, you will, you will love it. Um, and by the end, he did. And it's nice when you get to, I'm, I won't lie and say, I love the fact when I say I told you so to a child. <laughs> um, so within that case study, Declan didn't like to read at all because he'd got it in his head that he couldn't read. So the choice for him was that he didn't want to read. That was his choice. So it was about building up this idea that he's in charge, he's in control of his reading journey. Um, and we started with fluency trees. Um, and from that, because he was hearing himself read aloud, and it goes back to this pedagogy, when a child hears themselves read aloud, that's the magic because then they believe themselves to be a reader. So when he started hearing himself read aloud and he was reading in the phrases, um, yeah, there were several moments where he thought, oh, my goodness, I'm really good at this. And so at the start of every reading lesson, um, he would ask for a reading fluency tree. And then throughout the year, I sort of take them away from him. So it wasn't a crutch because that was the one thing I was wary of. that I didn't want it to then become a crutch for him. And then when he'd realised, oh, miss, I'm just reading. Where's my fluency tree today? For me, that was it. Then I was like, yes, he's reading he doesn't need that support as such, and he's enjoying it. But he'd almost done that self-reflection and thought, "Oh, where's where's my um where's my starter activity?" Like he didn't need it anymore. Um, I can't specifically tell you when or how that happened, but I think it comes from that belief. Like the child needs to believe in themselves, but it's almost like the teacher's belief in them needs to be it sort of overpowers them to believe in themselves. And then that's what happened with him. But then he then. Um, would choose to come and see me at lunchtimes or find me at lunchtimes and say, Miss, I found this book, can I read it to you? And then it was wet break. The way. It's, it's lovely because I think it's these little moments and when you can capture it in a chapter like that in an academic book, it's just, it is brilliant. Um, he didn't realise the class had started to come back in and he was still reading. I said, you want to read aloud the rest of the book to the class? And he did. And that for me was, it was, that's it. He's he's chosen to read in front of everyone. He's not nervous about it. He's a white British working class boy as well. And there's a lot, there's still not enough research around that group of children for me um, because sometimes they do get lost. So for me, I think it just, it, and it, he then sort of made, it was, oh, reading's quite cool actually. And he's one of those boys that you can see when he gets into key stage two, he's either going to choose to muck about or choose to learn I'm not entirely sure what he's doing right now. I'm not in the school anymore. Um, I hope that he, he's he got those tools now to just carry on with his learning. But for him, it was pivotal. Because if he didn't realise he was a reader in year two, key stage two for him could have been very different. Um, so, yeah, so that, it, again, it just comes back to it being, being child-centred. Yeah. Thank you, Kieran. That story, it's it's really reminds you, doesn't it, that, reading and a love of reading unlocks all the other learning it's it's the key and it's such yeah. an important key we, you've just talked there about about children reading aloud and our next question was around educators reading aloud to children so how important is it for educators to read aloud to children and how can teachers incorporate this into their learning day 
very important um hands down probably one of the best ways to enable a child to learn vocabulary as well without feeling um overwhelmed by the text in front of them I see as a, a right of every child that they are read to allowed. I think with all the schools that I have worked in, the one thing that was quite saddening was they didn't have the story times and things at home, especially when they were younger. And um, so it's almost like they missed out on that sort of, for me, pivotal part really of growing up. Um, and that does come down to socioeconomic you know, status and things like that as well. But it's also um, a lot of these communities that they can't read themselves. So I think that always needs to be taken into account when you're thinking about the reasoning why behind that, because there's always a story. So story escapes, story time, just reading aloud is important. Um, and I'm very privileged in the position that I had. When I started my English leadership role, um, it was a non-negotiable for me and I was listened to, which was lovely. And so at the end of every day for 20 minutes, it was a non-negotiable, you would be reading aloud to your class. What I found was that some of the teachers weren't confident about it, so then it's a case of, okay, so how can I um, enable you and empower you to feel that you're a good enough reader to be modelling it to the class? And that came through their choices in books as well, so what did they enjoy reading to their children? It's another way of sort of building relationships because you get to know each other through books as well, don't you? So um, it was a non-negotiable for me, and that has across our trust of schools and I know sort of other um, professionals in the reading world that is a non-negotiable so just reading aloud to them and it doesn't need to be I think there's this misconception that when you get into key stage two you need to read meaty books I read Blue Gruffalo to my children in the year five and six and they absolutely loved it this week um, and it's a case of like they are still children I loved early years in key stage one because they're a little bit there's not that coolness factor that they're worried about. Um, and so they will sort of just join in. And when you get to a stage where you're, it's like you don't have a choice yourself as to what one you're reading to them because they've chosen for you. Um, that tells you that they love that part of the day. They love that community feel as well. And I think that was the one thing going back to Declan. Um, he didn't feel like he was part of a reading community. And I think when you're reading aloud to children, it's the most inclusive way of making sure that everyone is accessing that story or accessing that book. Um, so that was important that he also saw himself as a reader like everybody else. Um, when I did um, a sort of pupil interview with some of the children in my class, so I've spoken to the children who absolutely loved reading and they were like, yes, I'm a reader and you're a reader because you read lots of books as well, Miss. And when it was during the COVID times, they could see like my bookcases behind Miss and you I read. Um, and they talked about that and they were like, you have lots of bookcases in your house and you read lots of books and I'm going to have lots of bookcases and I like to read lots of books. Whereas Declan, I don't see myself as a reader. It was quite, and he seemed to be quite intimidated by the others and what they were saying. So I sort of pulled him away and I says, would you like to see yourself as a reader? And he says, yeah. Okay, so I was like, well, what do you see in your other children that makes them readers? And the one thing he kept coming back to was that they're good at reading, they know how to read. And I was like, but you know how to read, Declan. It's just reading lots more, that's all it is. Um, so he was like, okay. And then so when we then brought in the fluency, he understood what I was saying about if you read more and you practice more, then you'll get better at it. But he then started seeing himself like the other children. He didn't see himself as an other to them. 
And I think the other aspect of when you're reading aloud to children is giving them the onus of reading aloud to each other as well. So some of my story escapes, I wouldn't read to them as such. It sort of become an Eric time instead where they read to each other and I would read to a group of children if they wanted me to. And so it then becomes a community of you just reading with each other and it's not a big deal. It's just it's part and parcel of what we would do as a class. But it does come back to the idea of community. Like They all need to feel that they belong within that, that classroom of readers mm-hmm. and then how you bridge that to a, a whole school reading practice as well, that if that's happening in every classroom, it's easier then to mix the year groups up. And when you have World Book Day, it's not about the costumes. It is about reading. It's about sharing your favourite stories with each other. Um, so for me, I mean, it's one of my favourite things to do anyway. And I think anyone who likes to read, it would be. But I don't know if that's because I love to read anyway, whereas other teachers don't. And I think that's where you need to empower them to through training, it is through CPD and things like that, but also coaching and live modelling, because if they're not confident to do it with their colleagues and peers, I always, I'm very careful about the quality as well of delivery, like it needs to be quality delivery, because if you're going to read it in a lackluster way, it's a risk of turning the children off. So it's just, it's making sure that those teachers and staff members feel confident to do that as well, because otherwise it just doesn't work. Mm. I think it's so many interesting points in that, Kieran. A, a lot of what you said, um, specifically about books and the specific books. I think there's there's um, when you're a teacher, a lot of things provide for attention for the for the time that you get in the day. And I think that's you know, what's so great about it. you've made it a non-negotiable that this is happening. And there's just so many. There's so many books on there. I think a lot of teachers struggle to see, you know, and you get taught about what quality text and what's not a quality text. And so what I'm going to ask you is how how about what to read specifically? You know, what should schools consider when curating their whole school class reading books, that kind of thing? The first time is that you want as many teachers to be reading teachers so you have that sort of knowledge um, within your staff team anyway, because I think that's important that they have a voice. For me, I always brought it down to themes, sort of think about the context of your school, think about the um, curriculum that you have, and then sort of base it around, I always come back to their rights as readers, sort of like, what is it that we want the children to know about in the world? What holistically, we're, you know, we're helping to help them understand the world. So I always start with picture books first, because I think that is, it's, one of the most inclusive types of text anyway. So picture books and miniature themes. Um, I know we're going to talk about um, sort of reading across the curriculum, but I think that's important as well in the sense that when you're curating your book lists, and they should never just stop at that list, like there's always, there should always be an um, opportunity to open that list, change that list. But start with thinking about well, what is it we want our children to have learnt by the end of the year in whatever year group it is and then what books are going to help them to get there. And that's through stories, that's through non-fiction texts as well. I don't think we have enough non-fiction in terms of reading for pleasure still because non-fiction books are just as good as fiction. So it's just it's making sure that you're mindful of what it is that we want in the children to learn because like you say, there is a lot to get through in a school day, in a school year. So it's how can we help that child understand their world but still meet the curriculum objectives as well. So I was quite, I was, I was really lucky. 
when I put the story escape list together because it was just my dream list of books that I'd want in every class um, and they took it on board in the sense that kindness was something that needed to run through diversity needed to run through and when I talk about diversity not just race and um, cultures and things like that but neurodiversity as well so within some of the schools not all of them we've got the um, black book of colours so that is in braille and you know you're not going to have like lots of children in your school that are blind but actually it's it's another way in to understand what it's like for a child who has you know difficulty seeing um so when I think about curating books it's about well, what is it that we're trying to curate for that child in terms of experience so picture books was always a starting point because they're short enough to read but they have enough depth that the child could then dive into afterwards um stories so we had like we have chapter books as well but it's, it's making sure that you read them and I mean I know I'm a, I know I read a lot so it's for me and then it's your networks as well trusting your networks and what they're giving you I'm very lucky that I review books as well so I have free books sent to me but it's a reading teacher I think comes at the in the in the middle of that in the sense that if you're not a teacher who reads it's going to be very hard for you to sort of curate any type of library for your class first rather than your year groups so I think you need to be a reading teacher but then it's not everyone likes to read um so then it's thinking about well everyone does read so what is it that they are reading so it could be you know maps some of the teachers loved maps in some of the schools that I've worked I'll sort of bring them in then and read them to your children like that's a skill in itself to so do that with them but it's almost like saying look it's again it's coming back to reader choice and I think what you share with the children you should share with the adults as well because it isn't one thing for one person and we're all humans at the end of the day so I think it's whatever you would do with that child technically it would work with the adults as well so it's making sure that you understand them as readers and then they're curating books that they are confident to read firstly but then giving them the confidence that I've read these books they are going to work for the children I've shared them with previous schools or I've used them with previous classes and this is the impact that I've had with them. So it, it always comes back to um, leading through practice as well. That's how I've always led through example. I'm not going to ask someone to read a book to their class if I don't know anything about the book because for me, that's the responsibility. When you think about um, a lot of books that have come out now, there is a lot of themes around bereavement and stuff like that. So if you've got you've seen hype about a book and it's really, really good, then you miss the part about bereavement and you just put it in the school because there's lots of hype about it. That is irresponsible. So I think it's really important that you, when you're curating books, do not go with the hype because there's a lot of hype about a lot of books. I think it's really it's being strategic about what it is you want your children to learn at the end of the year. What are your classes like in terms of cohorts as well? Knowing your children is key because if you have got children that have gone through bereavements and things like that, it might not be in that year for that year group you use that book. So, again, there's just lots of things to think about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You, you used a phrase, or I think I've read somewhere where you've used a phrase, reimagining the canon of classics. Oh, yeah. And I love that phrase. I've, I've got that written down somewhere like where I look at it sometimes because it's just it's just such a going back to what you're saying about the types of books that you choose and how you choose them and and the inclusivity of those books um that phrase a reimagined canon of classics is is a really I find it very helpful to keep in the front of my mind basically when I'm thinking about books and the other thing from what you were saying there 
was how you you said in your previous answer about creating a community of readers. And there you were talking about very much about the teachers being part of that community of readers and being part of what they read and bringing in their kind of personalities and their preferences. And that felt very important as well as you were you were explaining that. Um, So we've talked about books. And then I wanted to ask you about what role reading environments play and what they might look like. And I think right near the beginning, you mentioned something about um, social reading spaces. And I wondered if you could say a bit more about that as well. Um, book leather. So just making sure that when the children are reading books, um, they are talking about books in the sense that you're not directing them with questions or anything like that. It's just it's a natural and informal way of them just talking about the books. Um I think there's been like DFE guidance has come out and things like that. And Teresa Kremin, uh, when I see Teresa Kremin's name, I'm I'm happy <laughs> um, because she gets it and she's she's like the queen of reading for pleasure pedagogy. And I think there's been a misconception about reading spaces and said they need to look lovely. And yeah, in some respects, yeah, you want them to be inviting, but the onus needs to be on the books in that space. So technically, you could just have, like, for my year fives and six at the moment, like, I'm not, I haven't done what I've done with my key stage one children and my early year children, for example, because it's just, it's not going to impact them. It's it's the books more than anything. Um, so they have a few cushions. They love the glittery cushion, which, you know, I don't know what that says, but there's always that. So, like, that's a, a great thing when they've got the glittery cushion, they're reading on that. But apart from that, there's just, there's lots of books around them. Um, and I have got picture books. I've got my key stage one books in there. I've got um, books from different cultures. But it's it's the talk for me. When I think about a social reading environment, it is the book blether that comes from it. Because if they're not talking about their books, um, I don't think they're necessarily engaging with the books. And they're not. And for me, the magical thing is when you have like a few copies of the same book. And then they're sharing that reading experience, like they've gone to the same world as each other and they're talking about what it was that they liked or which character they didn't really like. That, for me, is the magical bit because it's 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 their understanding, they're sort of taking ownership of that. Um, and when you're thinking about social reading environments, it's sort of making pupil voice something that's evident in the room. So we have, um, and I've seen quite a few people do, where they have like a display um, the children are adding the books that they've read and they've put like post-it notes about recommendations or I recommend this for this person or this book I really enjoyed, this one not so much. Um, and I think that's really interesting because, again, it's just it's another way to get to know these humans that you're teaching for not very long. But it's <clears throat> it's those sort of impactful things that will help them when they're because, you know, they'll stay together as a class, won't they, like for the majority of the time. So you want to make sure they, they like each other and get to know each other. So for me it's that social reading space of like they're then understanding each other as people as well um and what's lovely is that we've got some books that like i was surprised actually at some of the books that the children enjoyed reading um <clears throat> so one is the wolf the duck and the mouse and they absolutely love it i mean the year six boys absolutely love it and for me that was quite a i was like, okay like it is a funny funny book but it's 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 the key stage one children it just sort of reminds you that they'll they'll read those books in a different way to the younger children and they'll get more out of it sometimes um, in different ways. So, yes, yeah, social reading space is about book leather, enabling the children to read about, read and talk about the books 
um, but then also giving them the space to share their thinking. So post-it notes has been the, the great thing for us, but it's that it's making sure that it's it's not just them sitting silent. And sometimes it can be just sitting silently and reading a book because some of them want to, but I don't ever want to stop them from talking about the books. I think there's <clears throat> there's been a weird niche rise of reading corner envy on social media in the past few years. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> we've all seen it. I think, you know, posting these um, reading corners to Instagram, which look like they're out of a magazine. And I think a lot of teachers see that and, and, and then feel bad about what they've got. But I think what you're saying there is really what you need to concentrate on first is, is the books, the actual text that you've got available. And then, um, making that a, a social interactive space where children can share and children can talk is more important than you know how many cushions you have in there yeah I think I mean I won't lie I sort of went down that route for a little bit in my early years <clears throat> because it was like oh, we need to make it pretty so that they'll go and sit but then actually I thought it turned the boys off if I'm honest with you yeah it's too girly in there it doesn't I don't want to go in there sort of thing and that's like the reimagining facts where that came from so I thought okay so that's a very gendered space basically in my classroom which is I'm not including everyone so I think it's if it's done with the right intention in the sense that you know your children so like I've had Marvel characters up and things like that or that Thomas the Tank Engine as well as you know the fluffy pillows and stuff like that but I think it's I mean flowers is a non-negotiable in my classroom like whatever classroom I've had there will always be flowers in there so that's something they're gonna have to deal with but <laughs> it's it is about the books it is about the books I think if you that's the whole point of a reading space is so that they can read the books um, and I think it's I don't know if that comes from there might be a level of insecurity there in the sense that I need to do so much to to show that I'm doing something about reading for pleasure but if that time that you spent on that display could actually go into reading a few books that you can then recommend to your children in your class. Which one's going to have more impact on the children? Yeah, it's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a word a couple of times during this, uh, fluency. So in what way does the development of fluency practice support um, reading for pleasure? Are there any inclusive fluency strategies that you have used? load so many fluency for me is like one of the most inclusive practices in reading anyway um it to be honest i knew of it but i didn't know there was so much research about it i'm being completely honest in that in the sense that there's certain things i think as a reading teacher you do naturally um, and so when i then started looking at it a bit more so we were very lucky with the uh, one of the schools in the trust where we had the hmi inspections the trial inspections and one of the things that they shared with was this idea of fluency and I thought, okay, I sort of know what it is. But then again, there was that misconception with some of the teachers when I did a um, staff voice about it, about it was reading fast, which it isn't. It's reading at a conversational pace. So when I started doing the research, for me as a learner and as a reader, it opened up a whole new world of strategies, which were, they're all inclusive. So Tim Rosinski, I call the godfather of fluency. He's he's the, one of the kindest people as well that you could meet in education. Um He's written a book, the mega book of fluency, and in there is like basically all the strategies I've taken from that book. So um, thinking about that community of readers, so echo reading, choral reading, reading aloud together, but doing it in a way that the, the texts are then inclusive. So I started it in Key Stage 1, um, 
And for me, that was a good litmus test, really, because I thought if there's still some readers in my, and it was a year two class um, in the, the three schools that I'd been in, who were still on red, I need to make sure that they're able to read what my gold readers are able to read as well. So the fluency tree was a great way to start that. So there are four facets to fluency, pace, phrasing, expression and smoothness. And expression was the easiest way to start with when it came to fluency. So in that book, um, and in, it's inclusive. So rather than teaching expression with punctuation through um, words, you could do it through the alphabet letters. So we had A, B, C, D, and then I just put a question mark or an exclamation mark after it. And that was a way of teaching that specific facet of fluency. But it was so fun as well. Everything is really, really fun when it comes to fluency. And you can laugh at yourself and the children will laugh at each other in a nice way. Um, <laughs> so it's that fun, though. It's that fun element of it that, oh, this is reading. I'm reading aloud and it's fun. So that was that was a nice way to sort of start across the whole school and then across a the whole trust. And then when it came to phrasing, that really helped the practitioners in key stage one and in early years in understanding that's what fluency is. So when you're teaching your phonics, that's great. But then can they use and apply their phonics using sight recognition as well as decoding. And the magic number is three. If they can read three words at a time, that's when their comprehension starts. So, yeah, it's fluency for me is inclusive. Like, whatever you do with it, it is inclusive because it's a way of enabling a child to read so that they don't feel alone in a, a classroom of readers. Like, there's, there's always a strategy that you can use with them. And Declan, that for me, it proved, Declan's story proved that fluency is a great bridge to not only enable a child to hear themselves read aloud, but understand that they are a reader and that they're good at it. So there's that. So there's expression activities, um, phrasal reading activities, tonal activities, so where you're just looking at your tone of the voice. So you have the same phrase, but then you give the children different situations. So... Um, I know one of them is dark in here, but they're in the mouth of a whale. So how would that sound? Um, or you're a master, how are you going to read it out loud? So it's lots of it is about repeated reading, but they're fun ways of doing it. And I think that that invokes the love of reading in the children then because they don't see it as something serious. And they're children. I think people sometimes forget they're children. But there's all this stuff for them to know, and I get that. But if you don't make it fun for them, they're not interested. They're not going to buy in. And fluency, it just it ignited the fun, not just for the children, but for the teachers as well, because it wasn't – you can assess fluency. Like, there's a multidimensional fluency scale, and that's a great way of assessing. But unless you teach it in a fun way, I don't think as a teacher you're going to appreciate the power of it. Mm. There's yeah. loads of us. So good. It's really interesting – having it in there as part of a reading for pleasure pedagogy isn't it because it's almost that is it is it that sort of balance between the pedagogical and the practical the fluency kind Absolutely. of in that space is that right because that's it yeah yeah Absolutely. and it's it comes back to the first point i made about this there's two parts of reading reading for meaning and reading for pleasure and i think fluency was a great bridge that when i realized how powerful it could be i was like we are going to put this in all the schools um, because it's that it was the fun element so because some like reading is hard it is hard and I think that I'll always go back to this book um, and it's titled I don't like books anymore and it's about a character who she loved reading because she was she was making a and she got and she was learning phonics it all became gobbledygook and it was just scribbles on a page 
And that for me has always been <clears throat> in the back of my mind for any child, because I think even if they're in year six or even year seven, um, it might still look like that to them. So it's how are you going to sort of take that fear away from them, that they are words that you can read and fluency, because a lot of it is about repeated reading. You're getting the reading for meaning quite covertly through the fun because they don't actually realise that they, they're reading the same thing over and over again. Um, but when they've read it and then they can tell you what's happened, it's like it's almost like they've done it without having to necessarily think, oh, my goodness, this is so hard to do, because it's a vehicle to enable them to read in a way that one is inclusive, two is fun, and three, there is no right and wrong because it's all about practice and practice makes progress. No one's ever going to be perfect. And I think that's another thing. When... When Declan, I need to be careful, I don't use his real name. When he was talking about the children that he saw as amazing readers, he was like, well, they never get anything wrong. And I thought, okay, so you, you're worried about getting things wrong. You're fearful of that. And it's almost like with fluency, they're taking risks that they probably wouldn't have taken before with it either. So it's, it empowers them. So I can't, honestly, I can't... Um, talk about fluency enough actually but Tim Rosinski he's on Twitter as well but he's one of the kindest people ever he really is he's been doing it for years and years and years but he's so humble as well it's quite it, it's quite um kind of sad to hear that that reading for some children has got that um reputation that it could you could get it wrong because you know obviously you hear that a lot from children about maths and things which do have very right wrong answers and that's a legitimate reason to not like maths because you think you're going to get things wrong but it's yeah it just it just made me <laughs> i don't know it's quite it's quite sad to think some children feel that way about reading and it's just and it's quite hard to to break them out of that cycle of of um thinking like that but i guess it just just shows how much more important it is than that you do because it, it, it leads to so much more great things when um when you can be like that, I suppose. Yeah, mm, definitely. And I think it's that, like, there's there's children that have always they found it hard. They find, like, phonics for some children is hard. And I think there's loads of research that says it works and it does work. But it's almost like you're going to have to find something else to hook that reader in in terms of the love for reading. Because if they're put yeah. off because they find it hard and they're worried about the risk of reading, because it is, it is a risk to them, it's a risk to their ego and things like that, like... So they tend to choose misbehaviour and things like that because it's they're avoiding it then. Um, so it's when you make it fun, and I haven't met a child yet who doesn't turn away from fun, when you make it fun for them, that they, they don't really have a choice, they don't realise they don't have a choice, but it, that's where the volition comes from because then they're choosing, oh, because it's fun, and it's you've got to make that that relationship happen for them, that they're finding it fun to do and that... Even if they do get it wrong, it doesn't matter because they'll get it right eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we mentioned very briefly reading across the curriculum, and I wondered if you can say a bit more about how reading for pleasure can support reading across the curriculum. Yeah, so the, the example that I gave when we had our trust day was, um, so I'd open that day with reading across the curriculum, and it was the book by Abby Elphinstone called Sky Song, and... It was this idea that that it's a gorgeous book. It's such a lovely story. Um, 
<clears throat> but when we're thinking about reading across the curriculum, um, that is a very high quality text. There are words in that book that the children won't understand, so therefore they're not going to get the most out of that book. So the premise that I built that talk around was this idea of like you've got your background knowledge, which comes through um, our curriculum, and then you will have your vocabulary knowledge as well. Without one or the other, they're not going to be able to comprehend the text. So we're sort of bridging from fluency and phonics and all of that into them understanding the world around them. And in one of, in that book, there's a word tundra. And what's great about our curriculum is that we have, we've created it as teachers. So what I know, because I'm lucky enough that I've looked through all of it and we started it years ago. But it's that idea that in that book, um, it's a story escape within the unit of work as well. So it's part of their um, story time. But there's a word tundra. And unless you've had the background knowledge, unless you've had the geography lessons, you're not going to know what a tundra is. Therefore, you're not going to understand the setting very well in that story. But what was brilliant, so we start, I've started a reading club in the school that I'm at now. And some of the year five, six children who have just joined the trust didn't have that curriculum taught to them in year three and four. But then the year three and four children at the reading club were like, oh, I know what a tundra is. This is what it means. It's a biome and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Oh, and so it was, what was lovely is that you've got the younger year groups who've now had this curriculum explaining to the children in the older year groups, this is what it means, and so that they had that understanding there. And I think when I talk about reading across the curriculum, it's making anyone aware that nothing in your reading provision should be in isolation. Everything is connected in some way, just like everything in the world is connected. So we have a topic, um, Amazing Islands, and I'd started the talk with... Um, Sam Cooke's song, A Change Is Gonna Come. And I was like, can you find the connection between that song and Amazing Islands? And it's that idea of this, like, these web of connections that, yes, it's rooted in slavery and um, like the civil rights movements, that song. But then this idea of Amazing Islands, the premise behind that was understanding the reasoning why um, Nelson Mandela was on Robin Island, which is part of that. And then we brought in Kendrick Lamar and things because it's when we're thinking about reading across the curriculum, the curriculum for me is the world. Like there are songs, there are texts, there are non-fiction books, and you need to have an awareness of that in order to bridge the gap of learning when it comes to cultural capital. So it's it's a massive thing. It's a massive thing. Um, and I always go back to, and I know it's not about SATS papers, but I always go back to whatever year it was, the dodo SATS paper that made the children cry in the year six at the time. Um, and I'd put Fleetwood Mac on as one of the store, uh, one of the songs. I love Fleetwood Mac and not everyone will. And not everyone knew what the song was. Not everyone knew what I was on about. And I thought that was the point I was making, that the metaphor was there about the chain. This is my inference question that I'm asking you. This could be a test question. It could be any question in a lesson. If you don't have the background knowledge of Fleetwood Mac and you don't have the comprehension to understand the metaphors, you're going to feel like that child who had the dodo paper in front of them. And it comes back, again, it comes back to that child-centred approach. Like you, you've got to emphasize with those children that you know, it's not our choice we're putting them through these tests, but it's making it as easy as possible. But a lot of the teachers didn't have a clue about Fleetwood Mac or knew the song. I mean, I taught them about the song. Need. <laughs> um, but it's that it's that idea that it's we need to give them the background knowledge that's why reading across the curriculum is so important but also being aware of the connections that you want the children to make then you will need to be aware of those connections as a learner before a teacher as well 
So it's a massive thing. Um, but then from that, and I'm always I'm always careful about that idea that you have these themes and things, but you don't want to narrow the curriculum. But then that's where reading can sort of stop narrowing the curriculum because you know I didn't play yeah. the children. I wouldn't play it because the spares and stuff. But I know there's children that do listen to him, and it's almost like making that you know that piece of their identity is worth something. It's valuable, and how can we link it to their learning? Um, so when it, it came to all of those links that I was explaining across the curriculum, it comes back to that idea that living in a world, nothing is in isolation in this world, that there are connections throughout it. And the reading, the books, sort of stop you from narrowing that curriculum because it's enabling them to think a little bit more outside of the box, whatever part of that theme that they really enjoy doing. So... Um, one of the schools, I don't know where the money came from. I didn't ask any questions. But I had, <laughs> money. I had a load of money where it was then, okay, so we've got our story escapes. We've got our key text that we have for each year group that links in with our English curriculum. We now need to build sort of a, um, a reference library around those themes as well. So making sure that we had loads of books related to that theme. So when we're looking at fair trade, we had loads of books about fair trade and charities and chocolate um, you know, Egyptians, Shakespeare, but making sure that we had enough books within the school so that that could be part of their story escapes as well and that could be part of their, um, like, book blankets and, you know, phase one in our writing could be them just reading loads of books about the theme. I don't always think it's good to put the child on the laptop and look at the internet. It's great. You can teach them critical thinking through that, but I think there's something essential about making sure that you have books sort of holding up a theme as well. That's really exciting. Jack, it makes me, we're listening to Kieran speak there. It makes, I have that that sort of inspiration as well when you talk about the connectivity of everything, and but also that sense that there's a sort of freedom in that, isn't there? There's a freedom as you work within your curriculum or build your curriculum of what you are you are choosing to bring into your classroom and your school as a whole school approach. They're, you know, you're not actually confined. I think there is I think yeah I definitely am one of those teachers what I've noticed though is that there are there are teachers still who are scared of that freedom or not necessarily scared of the freedom scared of doing it um, and I think it's it's almost like I think working in a trust is interesting because it's that word the trust have said and the trust wants you to do this and it's like yes we do but I think I was hoping through that talk especially that they could see that Yes, there's a trust, there are certain things that are non-negotiables, there are. But that is not to stop you as a teacher taking it and making it your own for the children in the class because, you know, I've like, I taught year two for three, four years and every time I did the tunnel with them, it was slightly different because I had a different class each time. It couldn't have, it couldn't be the same. And I think it's, it's <clears throat> I've noticed there is still that fear that they have and I, I'm not entirely sure how you sort of get it out of them because it isn't that. It isn't about saying you must do this and if you don't do this, this is going to happen because nothing's going to happen. I think it's, it's always got, I always come back to it's got to be child-centred. Like I've had many conversations, especially with the early years teachers at the moment about their phonics. And I think like if you're telling me that they're not able to blend properly, then just carry on with the blending practice because if that's what you're saying the children need, I agree, it's pointless going on any of the sounds because they can't blend them. And I think it's almost like trusting and I don't, it's, 
it's sad that there is still that worry and there is still that fear um, and there's many places you could lay the blame but I won't do that um, and it, it is just it's saddening to think that it's still happening um, but yeah you can talk and talk and talk and say look it's okay to do it but it's it comes down to that teacher at the end of the day isn't it really and how empowered you're making them feel to make sure that they are willing to take those risks because there is a risk um but it is it's I can't say like all of the teachers in this trust and other teachers you know they're free and they'll they'll do what they need to do for the children because it isn't it isn't like that just yet but I'm not entirely sure how we get there with that I mean it comes down to lots of things you've already said like CPD that's available and the funding that's available and the support from SLT for that particular teacher it's so many different factors in there that lead to to that kind of thing um last but not least our final question what happens when children see themselves as expert readers oh it's just magic it's yeah <laughs> you want them to be um you want them to be smarter than you to be honest like you're not the function of all knowledge in that classroom like this that you're the brains in there so technically you'd want them to be cleverer than you um i think that's for me is when they become an expert reader it's their confidence it's their self-belief it's the thing that makes them human grows more um and i don't think there's any one lesson that enables that better than reading and i know i sound really biased when i say that um but unless they can read they cannot they cannot access the rest of anything in their lives so i think for me it's that it's that magic of them realizing i can do this and I, I will go back to death and it's so lovely that it's sort of like in a book um, because it is said, I can't read, miss. And I thought, OK, you will be able to read. Then it's that their understanding of themselves as a reader that, OK, I can take myself to this book and have a go at it. And if I'm finding it hard, it's coming back to that community. There's someone else in my class or someone else in the school that can help me with this. And it's coming back to those social reading spaces where, Unless you give the children the space to discover for themselves what they like to read, how how will the other children know who's the expert in that that can just go to and ask a question about space or football or, you know, flowers or whatever it is. So I think it's lots of different things that you need to do to enable the children to understand themselves first as a reader so that they know what they like reading about and then having the um, space to share that love and that enjoyment of whatever it is with the other children I mean, it's almost like a mini workplace then, isn't it? Like, I'm not great at maths. Like, I never will be because I don't like it. But I love reading. I love English. So I know that's my passion. That's where it's led me in my career. But there's teachers that will come to me. But then there's teachers that I would go to about maths just to double check something. And it's that at the end of the day that you want them to become the expert in whatever they're going to be passionate about. And you can't do that unless you give them the freedom to explore the books. And yes, it comes down to reading for meaning. And but unless you have that reading for pleasure and that volition, they're not going to get very far with it being an expert reader. I think, I think that <laughs> freedom has come up a lot during this. And I think it's a, it's a funny one because I think in school, especially, children do quite a lot get pigeonholed into what to read, you know, with age bands and book bands and things which i'm not entirely knocking because i know that they're necessary in some capacity but that um idea of giving them a choice and the freedom of what to to 
pick up and what they're interested in is a big one. Because I, I always think like, when I was that age, I was one of those reluctant readers and didn't like reading at school until I found out that they did books about Pokemon. And then I was, <laughs> that was it. And my mum still retains to the day that the only reason I learned to read was so I could read those books. So I always think I always think that when I was a teacher, I always came back to that and thinking. I love that. <laughs> when I had those reluctant readers, I was like, <clears throat> "You're just reluctant to read this, but you might not be reluctant to read this over here." Yeah, so. Exactly, but it comes back to knowing the children in your class. Unless you know what they're into, you're not going to tempt them into reading. Like you're not. Yeah. Um. So I think it. Yeah. I said it at the start. It's child centred. When we talk about reading for pleasure, it is child centred because it's about them and their choices and what they're enjoying um so that's that's a perfect example yeah yeah i think that is the perfect place to end so thank you kieran so much it was it's so inspiring listening to you talk and and you've inspired i think i'm sure all of our listeners about the possibilities of of reading for pleasure the the, the what is possible everything is possible out there so thank you for joining us today it's been Thanks. brilliant yeah, thank you for having me again. I really enjoyed it.